Hello and welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. My name is Violet Luca and I'm the digital producer. Back in January of 2016, we started doing this podcast on a weekly basis after a few one-off episodes. This is our 101st episode, so this seemed like a good opportunity to share some highlights from nearly two years of shows. Because this podcast doesn't make itself. In addition to yours truly, it's made by Nicholas Rapold, Michael Koreski, Mike Odemark, Chloe Lizotte, and each and every one of our guests. We've had a lot of amazing guests over the years, and because so many are critics, the nature of the craft of film criticism has frequently come up. Here's Matt Zoller Seitz and A.O. Scott from March 2016. One thing I would love to see more in mainstream criticism is more discussion of form. Mm. More discussion of how form articulates content, because there are still, 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 still too many film reviews being written that are basically book reports. And they're ignoring the essence of the movie, which is how it says what it's saying or what you think I, it's saying. Yeah. I agree with you with the um, the qualification, which I touch on a little bit in, in the book, is that it's very easy and important to be in favor of talking about form. It's much harder to talk about what form is, what the boundaries of form are, um, in maybe in particular with film, which is such a complicated hybrid art form. I absolutely agree with you and then um, I find myself very often you know in a kind of a both a theoretical and a practical quandary when I'm trying to figure out when I'm trying to um, to follow your advice or obey your uh, your instructions and I can't figure out you know where where do, where does form leave off and anything else begin I always think a great practical guidepost is if I am making an assertion about how characters are represented or how a piece of the story is put forward or not put forward what is evidence of the failure and the evidence of the failure is very likely something that is formal. Like a woman is, in theory, being treated equally to a man in a movie and being given her dignity, and yet the camera angle is from high down so we can look down her blouse. That's a detail that we can mention. Like, mm-hmm. and, that's, yeah. and that's a point of view. That's, that's where the camera was put. So that's, you know, that doesn't have anything to do with the written text. That's, that's a matter of directorial articulation, but that helps buttress your case. And, and also, I just think it's fun. It's just fun. It's fun to write. It's a fun sandbox to play in. David Bordwell discussing his book about Otis Ferguson, James Agee, Manny Farber, and Parker Tyler was also really edifying. Late Farber is really Rococo. I mean, really something. But you can see seeds of it here, I think, where he's starting to like spin off in various directions. And um, that playfulness is something I found I really liked in all of them. They mm-hmm. all had that in one degree or another. I mean, maybe Ferguson is a little bit more the, the film noir detective, you know, wrapping these things out. But he's got his own little weird ha- habits as well. And A.G. is maybe more the self-conscious romantic poet. And Tyler is definitely the more surrealist because that was the artistic school he subscribed to. Mm-hmm. But even in Farber, you get a sense of almost a verbal collage here where he's cutting, like you know, kind of uh, cutting and pasting going on. So, I mean, the fascination, this is why I called them the Rhapsodes, is because each one of them in his own way kind of gets carried away, the way that we, we, you know, classicists speak of epic poets being visited by the gods and kind of pulled into an ecstasy of just this level of verbal activity that doesn't seem human. And by analogy, I tried to suggest that all these guys, independent of their 
their smartness as critics, their acuity as critics, was also a, a real kind of master of language in, their, yeah. in, in, in eccentric ways, to go back to Nick's point, that was not part of literary culture at that time. You look at Edmund Wilson or Mary McCarthy or some of these very distinguished critics of the period, they don't write this way. Right. It's almost as if film freed these guys up to be a little wilder than literary culture allowed most of the more established critics, let alone poor old Stark Young, who, whose reputation still baffles me, but who was considered very much the dean of dramatic critics of that period. This sense of history, our personal relationship to the medium, or film at large, is also a fundamental part of what we try to highlight. Here's Kent Jones. Kent, you worked at the first video store, the first dedicated video store in Manhattan. It was the first dedicated video store in Manhattan. Yeah, it was on McDougal Street between Bleecker and Houston. No, Western and Bleecker, sorry. Okay, yeah. And it was a walk down. And it was new video and it was it was started by a couple of guys named Steve Savage and Michael Pollock. It was a wild place. Why was yeah. it wild? It was wild in a, a few senses. One was that, you know, since we were the only game in town and since people were very into the idea, you know, the customers were, you know, there was like Julian Schnabel, David Byrne and Jerry Harrison, Cindy Sherman, Robert Longo, Rauschenberg sent an assistant in for movies. Schrader dropped in one day to buy, you know, a copy of one of his own movies as a birthday present for the actress that starred in it. <laughs> Things like that, you know. <laughs> Um, sometimes people would come in and, you know, say, hey, can I trade you a couple lines for a rental? You know, I mean, um, lines of poetry, right? lines of poetry. <laughs> and, and, you know, it was a heady atmosphere. Let's just say. Maitland McDonough. Times Square audiences really fell into two groups, I think. There was the daytime group, and that's the group I was usually in. Because, to be honest, some of those theaters were a little bit scary at night. Mm -hmm. And I started going to them when I was very young. And I have to say never had any trouble in a Times Square theater. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever even gave me the side eye, let alone bothered me. I mean, I, I've told this so often that now it sounds like a routine to me, but the first time anybody tried to feel me up in a theater was at Cinema Village, and, <laughs> and it was during Sallow. Oh. <laughs> oh. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, so the Times Square theaters were a positive safe haven by comparison. The Friday night audiences were really great. And I would occasionally go on a Friday night to mm -hmm. see a big horror film that I really wanted to see, like Blood Beach. And my <laughs> really want to see factor did not translate into I'm really so glad I saw that movie because right. Blood Beach is not so great. But the thing I remember most about that is that the theater was so packed that I had to sit in the balcony. Oh. They usually didn't open the balconies in, the, in those theaters because it was just hard to keep an eye on what was going on up there. And... Mm -hmm. The, the staffs in those theaters did try to keep an eye on what was going on, but that balcony was not only open, it was full, and there was so much dope being smoked up there that I swear I had a contact high for the entire time, which probably made Blood Beach as good as Blood Beach could possibly be. Molly Haskell. You talk about seeing, like, an unmarried woman in the theater and having people sort of react badly to it. What was the sense in the air? Was it that, you know, these films are really touching on something? Or were they just sort of like almost there but not quite? Or well, like, both. Both yeah. in a way, I think. They were. They were touching sore spots. That it's, it's very difficult to get into the context of an age that you've passed by. It's so hard to, even for me that went through it, to remember exactly what it felt like. Because now careers just seem so almost automatic and women are just so out there. 
but women were not out there. They weren't in public life. They weren't on, they weren't on that much on television. I mean, I think television came along even when movies were still being run by the you know the boys clubs in Hollywood. Women were making tremendous strides in both behind and in front of the camera in television. But this was a period of reading a lot, reading Germaine Greer and Gloria Steinem and Ms. Magazine and. They, Ms. Magazine, when, my, when I wrote From Reverence to Rape, they did not print an excerpt because they did not agree with my thesis that things had actually been better for women in the studio system. They thought, well, of course, because feminism is here, the, the, you know, the theory of progress. And later on, I did write for them, and they did come to see what I was talking about. But I said it, I remember, so this is what the general culture was not on the same page with feminism. I did... A, Joan Mellon and I did a stint for the Today Show, and we were taped talking. She had done a book on Bergman and women in my book. I was saying how, how dismal the situation was. The 70s was really a low point. I mean, these films were outstanding simply because they had women at the center and act, great roles for actresses, how dismal it was. And then the tape was run. It was Barbara Walters who was watching the tape and then talking with her co-host, and she said, well, I just think they're paranoid, don't you? <laughs> you know. And then three or four years later, one of the film critics groups, I think it was a film critic circle, somebody raised the idea of not even having a Best Actress Award because just to show, this was mostly men, critics, yeah. just to show um, how outraged they were about this paucity of women's roles. But I said, that's not fair to the actresses. You can't just not give a, a role. But I, I mean, that was the degree... That was the sense of how women were being shortchanged at that time. And meanwhile, they were, it was one of those, it was a sort of disconnect because they were making strides in politics and, and the professions. But at the same time, movies always a little behind the time and hadn't reflected it. Shani Enelo. It's interesting to think about this question in terms of the rise and perhaps fall of method acting because, mm -hmm. of course, method acting came into, or, or shall we say, method acting came into the public consciousness through the actor's studio right. and other training centers where different teachers like Sanford Meisner and Stella Adler were teaching what they uh, understood as a form of realist acting or, or their, their acting methods. Those rose to prominence in what's often called the age of the expert, right? Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, uh, you know, this is when we see not only a rise of professionalization as not limited to traditional disciplines, but the idea that you could professionalize in almost anything that, you know, comes to us from the 50s. And so, of course, being a professional actor is becomes important in an age when you're supposed to be a professional anything. It would be interesting. I haven't thought too much about this, but it would be interesting to consider that in light of our new, I don't know, flexible economy or like yeah. freelance culture or like temp gig. culture or whatever yeah, you want to call it. Gig culture, right? Yeah. The gig economy or, and also with like the rise of what some people call immaterial or effective labor. You know, I think that's like really interesting. And that's something I'm working on now, like trying to think about how acting styles change in, in relation to this new phenomenon in the, of the post-industrial economy, right, where many people have theorized the lines between performing a role and, and working a job become ever more blurred. Yeah. More Kent. Cinema is such a young art form. It is barely 100, you know, it's just a little bit over 100 years old, which is nothing in comparison to theater or poetry um, or music. And I think... Andre Bazan wrote this thing where he said cinema caught up with the other art forms and it already has a classicism. I think that he was just wrong. And 
he he could be wrong. It's yeah, okay. Sure, of course. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, I understand what he meant, but having said that, when we say classicism, we're talking about something very specific in relation to cinema post French New Wave, I guess, you know, just to throw a dart at the at the mm-hmm. board. And particularly post nineteen eighties slash rock video era. That's right. when things really changed. And you could, you know, do a spray of shots that, you know, just kind of like edit them together intuitively to create a sort of like visual impression and then, you know, screw around with the continuity so that once people, once it became clear through rock videos that people didn't care about that kind of continuity that had been the basis of film, then things, you know, kind of opened up. Nick Pinkerton. I, I, I know very few things, but I know this to be true, is that anyone in this enormous upheaval that we've been living through in the Web 2.0 era, anybody who tells you that they have a sort of teleological determinative idea of what is going to happen, they're almost certainly trying to sell you their idea of what they want to happen. Correct. <laughs> so anytime anyone tells you streaming's the future, it's, you know, theatrical's dead, brick and mortar's dead, that's the way it's going. That may be the case, but I'm almost certain that A, nobody fucking knows actually what's going down. Yeah. And if somebody is saying that in a definitive and fanatical manner, they are trying to sell me something, mm-hmm. which is their platform service. And this I've been certain of since the early days when we first started hearing a lot of chatter about day and date, which I track back and maybe this isn't accurate, but certainly it first comes up onto my radar with the release of Soderbergh's Bubble 2006 uh, by way of uh, Magnolia Pictures when you had Mark Cuban as the first avatar of the streaming revolution. So, anytime I I hear a definitive streaming is where it's going, I put a big asterisk next to that. And because the podcast is about exploring the taste of well-respected critics, things that they might never touch on in their writings, there are some personal reveals. Here's Wesley Morris and Amy Taubin. Like just staying in the realm of the movies, who is an example of your type of man? Oh, God, I don't know. I mean, I'm not thinking right now, but the kinds of men I both like to watch usually and like in life are more feline than he is. Oh, interesting. You know, and that's... Like you're Alain Delon if we're staying in France or... Kind of, but not even. Alain Delon was just so... Beyond beautiful. Yes. Okay. Not particularly anything else. (laughs) I'm trying to think of like a like a classic version of this. Jean Pierre Leo. No, not at all. Okay. Um, Jean Pierre, he's like a puppy dog. Right. Okay. Um, Like, I mean, the only thing when you say that, the person who comes to mind right now is I don't know Barishnikov. Okay. (laughs) Feline. (laughs) Interesting. Okay, then I'm not even going to name the other. I was going to say Gaspar Ulilel or something like that, but Willem Dafoe? Yeah, William Willem is like that. Okay, He's all right. He's a bit feline. Okay. I like blonde, so. Oh, blonde, <laughs> okay. Here's Ashley Clark and Amy Taubin. 
in terms of writing about it. Particularly just critically and, and how the critical discourse yeah, around this. I mean, things. I got an email from my friend Joan Dupont, who is a critic and who saw Manchester by the Sea. And she saw, she was very, very moved by it. And she thought the film really engaged the horror of that particular middle-class New England life where the husbands and wives never talk to each other and the guys just go out and get drunk. And she saw it as a particularly, particular depiction of white, middle-class, nominally Protestant life, and particularly the estrangement of the men and the women. I just don't like the movie. And what I don't like about the movie, I think it's a fine movie. I mean, it, it just seems to me to be a melodrama that I've seen a hundred times. And when I find myself saying, it's a melodrama I've seen a hundred times, it may be more finely done, but it seems profoundly uninteresting to see that story. I feel terrible for that guy. I don't see how you live with yourself after that thing would have happened but I don't give a fuck. And really what I'm saying is I don't give a fuck because of the whiteness of it. Here's me, Cameron Collins, Michael Koreski, and Ashley Clark. Obviously, I was a teenager and I wasn't watching Barry Lyndon. I was watching A Clockwork Orange and there's just something about the tone of the film that is very amenable to teenagehood, let's say, and just like a very sort of cynical view of the world. And, you know, obviously the author of the original book, you know, Anthony Burgess, he was very upset that Kubrick snipped off the last chapter of his book where, you know, Alexander Delarge, you know, becomes a father himself and sort of grows up and realizes, you know, hey, I should be more responsible. And it's like, well, fuck that. That's the stupidest. What are you? Why do you act like that is the best ending? And that is so crucial. Fuck you. Like death of the artist all the way on that one. Like, I, you know, the ending ending with I was cured all right, like, that's, sorry, that's the world we live in, buddy. Kubrick was very good at endings. Yes. Let's just say. A killer, yeah, killer 2001 endings. A Space Odyssey, let this guy end a movie the way he yeah, wants to end a movie. <laughs> have, a little, have a little faith. Well, same thing happened with The Shining. I mean, oh, yeah. it's oh, whole, I mean oh, Stephen yeah. King Notoriously. is hilariously Stephen King still to this day. He says, again, I yes. respect it, but it's a terrible adaptation of my book. It's yeah. like, well... To this day, your book's kind of just okay, and that's one of the great films of all time. Right. So maybe you should show a little appreciation. Well, yeah, and I mean, I mean. <laughs> Nick Pinkerton? In most cases, I'm a person who wants to find a point of entry to things. So as I was thinking about, you know, directors I hate, I don't think there's a great many of them. There are directors who are widely... I think in some circles at least acclaimed who I've never really been able to find the handle for mm -hmm. save for you know odd films here and there um, who I would like at some point to have the experience that other people seem to have while watching say Ho Xiao Shen's The Assassin I don't have that experience so I thought of somebody who I really had an active dislike for where I don't really want to find a way to appreciate uh, their films, because mm -hmm. if I were to have done that, I think I would have to have had like a traumatic brain injury of some kind. <laughs> and that brought me immediately to Darren Aronofsky. Uh, there we go. And sometimes there are reversals. 
I did indeed see Darren Aronofsky's mother. I saw it on assignment. Otherwise, I think I would have given this bad boy a very wide berth indeed because I have a track record of extreme antipathy towards Darren Aronofsky. But I plonked myself down. I watched the movie. (laughs) And I got to tell you, it's got some moves. Regardless of what we discuss... Like the time I gave people soju while talking about Hong Sang Su's films. Well, that was really good. You should have some more. <laughs> <laughs> and Max Nelson might have had a little too much. He's also good shooting down bars. It's another another trademark tra- trademark shot of his that I don't see in many other kinds of films, and I think he does so well. Or how we attempt bold new ways of expressing cinematic satisfaction. It's, it seems to be an influence on things like Gummo and these kind of, I think it's Korean influence. Um, and I thought it was kind of wonderful and terrifying and highly recommend it. Hmm. <laughs> trying to think of a gesture I can make. <laughs> A, a gesture of, of satisfaction from a movie that will not translate. I'm dead. Um. <laughs> or when I talk shop with another nervous but cool woman, Kristen Stewart. Recently, I've worked with a lot of people that I've looked up to for a long time, which has been fantastic. And like, I'm so lucky. But I'm also totally not opposed to working with somebody like who I can sit in a room with for five minutes and go, oh, yeah, I know. I know you, I know you, I want it. And I'm going to, we're going to do this. Mm. And um, so that's cool. Like, yeah, that's it. I hope it leaves you a little more informed, more entertained or more outraged. If you're into that sort of thing, this podcast has been a huge learning experience for me, quite obviously. So thank you for subscribing. And now on to more of the same, but different. During the New York film festival, I interviewed Ruben Osland about The Square. Writing in the November-December issue of the magazine, Michael Koreski describes Osland's film as, quote, providing a particularly strong ballast for an exploration of economic disparities, racial and gender inequality, self-righteous political hand-wringing, and the intellectual flatulence of liberal cosmopolitanism. Here's our conversation. There's a moment in the film where Michael, who is Christian's assistant, tells him to stop being so Swedish. And you can sort of infer from context what that means, but what are we as like outsiders, not Swedish people, missing when he says that? <laughs> well, one thing that I can tell you is that uh, the assistant and the main character is played by two Danish actors. Oh, yes. So, and the Danish people, they have, you know, a little bit, they're thinking of Swedish people as very politically correct. Mm. And uh, yeah, that they are a little bit more suppressed by, uh, like, men are more suppressed in, 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 in Sweden than they are in Denmark, etc., etc. So that was, like, the thought that I have a little bit to play on these, how do you say, stereotypical ideas about Denmark and Sweden. And um, is that idea of correctness, because the ad guys propose, when they're talking about launching this big campaign, they, they say that they want a svensk blond. Right, which is mm-hmm. like a Swedish blonde, and they the subtitles translate translate it as um, 
like fair hair, yeah. but that clearly has some sort of, that's clearly tied to national identity in some way too. Is that sort of a different type of national identity than sort of this politically correct or is it, you know, is it a more conservative form of that? I think I was thinking of, you know, if you are creating a, a YouTube video that you want to uh, make it viral, then you are like aiming for as many conflicts as possible. Mm -hmm. And I thought that uh, uh, the PR agency or these guys, they were like finding a contradiction between being a blonde child beggar. Right. And that it, and for me, that's is of course interesting because, of course, you know, skin color and things like that is connected with economics and a certain kind of position that you have in, mm -hmm. in society. So I think they were like trying to provoke by making it blonde Swedish child beggar. Right. Throughout the film, it's sort of, you know, poking fun of the art world. But in the end, it turns out that marketing has all of the power that these exhibits, which can barely hold the attention of people who are actually visiting the museum, it has this real power to provoke. And it's sort of like, marketing has usurped art as the great provocateur. Yeah, no, but you're 100% right. Uh, you put it in a very, very good way. Um, you know, I was interested in, you know, an art museum is quite interesting because it's a place where you actually can come up with these utopian ideas and you can think out of the box. You can uh, ask the audience to try to imagine another society could be possible, etc., cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I was trying to talk to people about the square, uh, uh, because we had this idea about this art piece or this humanistic traffic sign that I like to talk, it, talk about it as, mm -hmm. then quite many people was like, mm, what a nice idea, you know, <laughs> but you shrug your shoulders and it's like, yeah, what should I do with that? Right. So, <laughs> so I think that like what, what the PR agency is doing is that, I loved the satirical approach of that they are supposed to promote something that is humanistic and altruistic. Mm. And in order to get attention to that in our time, they do something that is completely cynical right. and the opposite, you know, and that it works out. That yes. <laughs> media goes straight into the trap. They are looking for this conflict because it can bring attention to the ads on their tabloid web pages, you right, know. Right. Uh, and then they suddenly starting, you know, why did you did this um, uh, YouTube clip? And then it, because we wanted to promote an art piece. What kind of art piece is that? <laughs> <laughs> then they are sitting there and writing. Everybody uh, is writing down exactly what he's saying. So I, I wanted to yeah, highlight that absurdity. Yeah, because it feels like it's showing that marketing has usurped the place of art, like mm -hmm. the way that the way in which you know so much. 20th century art wanted to like challenge and push boundaries that's now taken over by marketing which is and in part because so few people are exposed to art it's this very small world ultimately mm, yeah, yeah. But, and maybe you need a little bit more background knowledge to actually get access to the kind of content that they are trying to communicate mm -hmm. sometimes it is like that at least uh, but i wouldn't say that i mean it's not that often that I'd see in the marketing world or in the advertisement world that they are actually showing us the new thoughts, no. the new ways of thinking about like society, et cetera, et cetera. They, are, they have to go and be quite mainstream and going on, yeah, aiming for like the most impact on most possible people rather than 
daring to be specific and really highlight something that is like interesting even though it doesn't apply, uh, apply to everybody's way of thinking so so i wouldn't say that they have have are the new place where the art is expressed that right i mean just it, i i was mostly referring in terms of like the artist's desire to sort of confront ideas and get attention, let's mm. say. But not, but obviously not every artist is trying to do that. I think if you're not trying to do that, then you are more of like, you're, you are not, I mean, I think that most of directors, artists and everything, they really are trying to scan and understand the arena in, in order how to get maximum possible attention. Right. But still, you have to stay true to the idea that you have and the intention that you have mm -hmm. uh, to the idea. Uh, and that is uh, a conflict. Right, right. The square and involuntary sort of feel, have sort of a similar feel because so much of this film feels like all the scenes feel like they could be standalone vignettes and there's a lot of small detail paid attention to each of them uh is this sort of a is this more of a product of your ability to you know have financial resources to shoot a single scene a day do a lot of takes or is it more wrapped up in how you know everyone in this in this story is so separated from each other so despite this sort of illusion of liberal values like everyone's okay. equal yeah Interesting thought. If it creates that feeling, then it's going along of what I have been interested thematically when it comes to the film. But I think that one reason that, you know, I think that what I have been inspired of when I look at moving images the last 15 years, it have been definitely YouTube yeah. and not uh, uh, cinema that much. Mm -hmm. the, the most powerful moving images I have experienced on YouTube. And these are scenes or clips that are standing just by themselves and you don't have to put them into a storytelling. Right, right. And I think that feature film have been so focused on storytelling in a way that, you know, will they get each other in the end right. or who will win, etc., etc. So for me, uh, I wanted to take the challenge and like that I think that all directors should do today that is dealing with fiction film or feature film is that we have to be the one that is creating the most powerful images. And then we have to compare ourselves to the images that we meet on the internet. Yeah. So I wanted to make like a film where you have each and every single scene should be able to stand by itself mm -hmm. and have a quality in itself. Uh, but of course, then also in the context, making making a strong experience of a, a feature film. And there are a few shots, um, particularly I've, I noticed this in like Christian's Tesla, uh, you know, where his assistant Michael is sitting in the back or where his daughters are sitting like right next to each other in the back. There's something a little unnatural about that. Mm -hmm. Was that more because you wanted to put the camera in a certain place or was it sort of like saying something about these relationships between these people it was a practical problem <laughs> so it was actually that I, we had a camera with a remote head so we could like go like this you know mm -hmm. and and with a joystick we could like um uh, do, deal with the framing uh but and what we did we put in the in the front seat we put like uh like some boxes and things like that. You don't really see them, yeah, yeah. Uh, but it was a practical problem. Okay, because there is throughout the film, there is like this sense, uh, you know, Christian is like the ultimate liberal man. You know, he is well manicured. He has a scarf. You know, he has the he has the right values and except for when those are tested and then all of a sudden he's 
you know, he's Michael's boss again, or he yells at his daughters. And and at the end, you know, he's he's sort of confessing and apologizing for not dealing with a problem very well. And he sort of is like, well, clearly the state needs to get involved and all this stuff. Where do you feel like that change in society can happen? Is it is it through art or is it through something outside of what people have been trying for the last, you know, since the 60s? I think it's I think it's possible through art. I think you can have an experience through art or through education mm-hmm. that that oh my I have to change my behavior. No, I have to try to be another kind of human being. It happened to me when I watched um, Mikkel Haneke's Code Unknown, actually. Mm. When I, after I watched that movie, I was like, oh my God, I have to pick up off myself. I can't leave any trash in the cinema. I have to, you know, be careful with other human beings. And uh, But also for me in the film, it it's also about, you know, that Christian is losing his position. Yeah. So he's like the chief curator in the museum. He has so many strings attached to him and people are pulling him in, in him in different direct- directions. And he's very afraid of losing his position. But he, when he finally loses his position, he's also free. Yes. So in, 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 for our, from that new position, when he's like, okay, he, he has lost part of his, uh, like, his prestigious status... Uh, then he'll have the possibility to go out to that building and, and try to apologize. But I love the idea, you know, that but the moment when he could do that is over. Yes. So the kid is not there and you have to live with the guilt. Right, right. The, the way children exist in this film is very interesting in that they are this constant impetus for him to try and act better. But again, it's always a little too late. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but usually, I mean, in films, children are either like, the center of attention and they're like these very sweet or complicated creatures or they're just sort of like not there. So the way I think it's, it's interesting to see how they're integrated into the, the larger story. But mm-hmm. I wanted, oh yes, I wanted to ask what sort of YouTube hole were you in or like why were you Googling man imitating chimp? <laughs> <laughs> because that's how you found uh, Terry No Terry. I think that after I made Force Majeure, mm-hmm. Then I had an idea, because I have a friend that is a director on a theater in Gothenburg, mm-hmm. um, and he asked me if I wanted to do something. And I had the idea that I should let actors play monkeys, uh, because there's something very interesting with that, because it's oh, a yeah. very direct way of acting. Yeah. Even a child can see who is the best one on, in imitating a monkey. <laughs> and it's harder to say who is the best one playing Hamlet. Right. So it's almost bringing down acting to a level of sports or you can see who is the best soccer player etc etc because we have a strong relationship to what it it is like to try to handle a uh, football right uh so that was something that i was like um a little bit curious about and (laughs) sorry i went down the wrong pipe uh no worries (laughs) sorry go ahead yeah uh, yeah, so so I was a little bit curious about that and fascinated when I could see that someone was good in imitating a, an animal or a monkey or whatever. And then I started to Google that and found Terry Notary uh, that is doing like a demo how he worked in Planet of the Apes right. when he was like, and he d- did like then a gorilla and a chimpanzee and oh, yeah. a orangutan. Yeah, I and saw he, this. Yeah, he, yeah. I have seen it. Yes, it's okay. great. No, and then yeah. and then when I watched the movie again, I was like, oh, I see him like doing the different. I know which chimpy's or which ape's doing. Exactly. <laughs> and in the in the monkey performance, we actually said like a mix up between different monkeys. Yeah. Uh, and 
at that time, I actually had the idea that the performance artist should be more like uh, a character that is closer to G.J. Allen. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yes. when I uh, saw that monkey imitation, then I like rewrote the scene and uh, then I let Terry um, yeah, Notary be the performance artist and bringing down these topics and questions about, you know, the bystander effect and these things to an animalistic level to, to, to try to highlight that human being is a herd animal. Yes. And the reason that we don't take responsibility sometimes is because we get scared and paralyzed and we think, please take someone else in the herd. Mm -hmm. So it was really the inspiration of Terry Notary's like, ability of Im imitating monkeys that created the scene. Yeah, because it's interesting you mentioned the bystander effect because, you know, in like psychology or sociology textbooks, it's always taught, you know, Kitty Genovese, that case where this woman was being raped and killed, you know, in an apartment block, uh, nobody acted. And in your film, what finally gets people to intervene is that this white lady is about to be raped, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, but everyone else who sort of gets abused, it's okay. Or it's like, it's sort of like, I don't want to be the one that this guy who just won't, who's so committed to performing yeah. that he can't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> was that something that you sort of figured out on the set or was that always in the script? It was in the script that, uh, that this audience that is like tuxedo dressed in the beginning should like be civilized, so to speak, uh, animals, mm -hmm. you know, and we're sitting there during this dinner and it's a very strict way how you should eat and how you should behave. And then this animal comes in that uh, doesn't have this uh, civilized shell, but only have the instinct and the needs. Yeah. And in the end, that uh, these these people in the uh, tuxedos, they should turn into animals themselves. Yes. <laughs> so um, I know that I wanted that structure, but it was also something in the way, in which way it should happen. Of course, it was something that we were like figuring out and sculpturing during the the shooting. Mm. And is there significance to the performance artist's name, Oleg Rogozin? Because it sounds like, I mean, he looks like sort of a UFC fighter guy from yeah, like yeah. a former Soviet satellite. But <laughs> The reason that he's called Oleg is because there's a Russian performance artist that I've been inspired of that is called Oleg Kulik. Oh, okay. And he did a performance in Sweden in an art museum when he was playing a dog. And that that event actually ended with that they had to call the police because he bit the sheep curator's daughter in the leg. So I think that his anarchistic and, you know, so dedicated way of uh, adapting to this role of being a dog was very inspiring. Mm. So sort of how we see it in the film, right? Just completely not sure, human anymore. Sure. Okay, interesting. And... Let's see. But I had a, I had a quite fun idea with the, the performance scene. You know, in the end when he's like looking in the paper mm. and it's like, like museum speculates in disgusting details or yes. blah, blah, blah. That it should be like one page. It should be like performance artist. And then you see Terry Notary completely in bandage and <laughs> Seuss Museum. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what that's because um, there's there's seemingly no repercussions for that for that event which is but you get to see in the in the tabloid there's like a story about the kitten yeah the <laughs> which is i mean there is about the kitten's mother that oh. is very worried about her little kitty okay <laughs> <laughs> um 
because there are a lot and there are a lot of like these small gags just really quick visual gags like christian when he's over at Anne's apartment and he's like sort of admiring the paintings on it on her floor and then he realizes that it's her pet chimp that made them and then he's like oh sort of like that because he's like completely disarmed and it's more it's like there's this ambiguity that he's maybe more disarmed by the fact he liked the chimps paintings than she has a pet chimp just sort of running around how much of that those things or like you know dominic west always wears like pajamas like those things how much was those were like scripted versus you know improvised or sort of came together during the shooting uh that was ideas in the script really and also the idea of dominic west playing a version of julian schnabel yes, yes. uh so uh and all i mean i i had an idea that I wanted the, the, the monkey, it was a beautiful monkey, it was a chimpanzee, half chimpanzee, half bonobo. And I wanted it to paint, do, how do you say, shock, what do you call it, when you're writing with kritor, uh, you know, like with a certain kind of pencil at least, you oh, know. Oh, oh, calligraphy. Yeah, exactly. Uh, that it should write knives and thunder clouds. That's what I was like writing in the script. Mm-hmm. But he was more doing a pattern thing. <laughs> he was like doing more of a chaotic yeah, mess. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the way the, the scenes with Anne sort of play out, because you, you can't really tell if she is a completely sane person and she just keeps running into Christian in these terrible moments, or if she is just this sort of like crazy woman that's sort of the worst ideas men have about women. <laughs> I think she's playing with this uh, this uh, uh, prejudice uh, mm. uh, that some men have, and I mean what I, what I really liked when I was working with Elizabeth Moss was when we were shooting that condom scene. Yes, and you know he's like, what is she going to do with the condom? And she's like twisting and turning that to is he paranoid or is she actually going to do something with the condom? And when when she's like leaving the room during one of the takes, she's like the last step when she takes, when she has the trash bin with a condom in it, she's go, runs out. And then she's like shifting their perception of the scene again. No, she actually is going to do something with it. And I mean, Elizabeth Moss was so skillful in using the setup of the scenes in a very intelligent way and understood immediately if I'm doing like this, then we will think of her in that way. And she was really, really balancing and going back and forth and making the audience very insecure. Yeah, no, she's um, she's great. And what sort of, I guess, when you were working with her, what sort of direction did you give? Like, there is like an element of cross-cultural communication yeah, going yeah. on, right? <laughs> <laughs> I think that, I mean, Elizabeth, what I did was like more giving her input of crazy ideas that we could use sometimes. You know, for an example, when they are standing outside the toilet, uh first i didn't have the idea that she had been on the artist talk with the Tourette's guy but then i found out wow this this is a great idea you know maybe she had been in the artist talk and this her icebreaker to get in contact with christian so then that's like something that came up during the shooting and otherwise i mean I'm trying to know when when she's doing something that i like a lot i then i think ah that was beautiful let's Let's keep that. Let's do that also in the next take and and things like that. But when you work with a skillful actor like uh, Elizabeth and Klaus, and I mean, all, I, I respect all of the actors in the in in the movie really. Then they are always playing on a very high level, 
And, and what I need to do is to give them time to explore the character themselves and trying to find out, not the character really, but just explore the situation yeah. uh, and trying to find out what makes us look at this situation in a completely new way. Mm. Because many of the scenes we have seen so many times before in a movie, but, and my challenge as a director is like, how do we make the audience to experience this situation again, but from another perspective? So I need to give these actors time uh, and they have to be uh, feel safe and secure that they are, uh, are allowed to be bad mm -hmm. because we have a lot of takes. So it's not like you have five takes now to perform right. and then they have to play safe. But I give them 25 takes and then they can be wild in the beginning and try out things that maybe be silly, mm -hmm. but it turns out to be brilliant and let's keep it. So, yeah. You know, you were talking before about, you know, cinema's obligation to sort of try and compete with the internet in a way that's not about speed, but it's about creating images that are indelible, that are shocking, that are very different. In order to do that, does it come more from like playing on ideas of what film should be? Or is it more playing on ideas, these other ideas of like morals that, you know, general ideas that we have as a society? Well, I think if you are a director and you, you, you should be aware of that the images that you are creating are re reproducing a behavior. Mm -hmm. So I think that moving images is a very, very strong and powerful exp expression if you want to change people's behavior. And you can see there's many examples of this during the film history, how, how movies have been used as propaganda and changing the way that we look on history and things like that. Um, so that's, of course, there's a, a responsibility to um, be, being in, 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 this, in this industry and working with a mass medium. Um, but when it comes to YouTube, what I really like about it is, for me, it's not not only being provocative and things like that, you know, you always have the most smallest subtle moment. For example, nine-year-old girl does her first ski jump. <laughs> it's beautiful. It's like a girl that is like challenging her fear and, and experiencing that uh, is something that we can do because of the moving image. Mm. And I mean, the moving image is such a great way of, how do you say communicating experiences, it's right. different experiences mm -hmm. and, 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 and communicating knowledge. Uh, so I think that we should question in the way that we're using moving image because moving image can be, now it's like definitely the most interesting art form there is. Mm -hmm. And I think that I would like to talk about my films more like mo moving images than like cinema, because as soon as you say cinema, then you think about blonde girls, guns, bang, bang, you know, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. like, uh, and it's, it's very limited. I think that there, there are so many more ways to use the moving image uh, in order to create attention and make something interesting. And the most interesting thing is not the storytelling always. It's like in the moment very, uh, of, very often. Final question before we end, because YouTube's always being updated. Are there certain things that you naturally sort of gravitate toward watching, like categories of, you know, like you just mentioned, uh, like the ski jump, and obviously, you know, you start off doing snowboarding videos, it's mm -hmm. like your first foray into moving images. Like, are there certain sorry, topics? Sorry, ski films. Ski it's films. It's a big difference. Sorry, okay. sorry, yeah, sorry, okay. my bad. <laughs> um, the, you know, there are certain topics that you are you know, like you type in that you're always look, you're watching or you like to see what new terms No, are. I think that what I do 
quite often there are videos that is sent to me from friends and you know you have to look at this and yeah. and but then also when i'm when i'm dealing with a new topic then i always go to youtube and, and consider it uh, like a, a reference bank mm. so if i'm shooting a scene in a museum then i immediately going googling contemporary art museum and right. oh and then you can add things like gone wrong or yeah. <laughs> and then you can find uh, the clips that is kind of humoristic so I, I use it uh, as a reference bank and in order to explore almost any topic that I'm dealing with All right. thank you <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much thank you you've been listening to the Film Comet podcast produced by Violet Luca and Nicholas Rapold and edited by Michael Odmark You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Film Comment is a bi-monthly magazine published by the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has featured in-depth reviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com slash subscribe to purchase a digital or print subscription to the magazine. Film Comment, at the heart of film culture for over 50 years. <laughs>